Hello, how's everybody doing? My name is Christian Wagner and I'm the Militant Thomist. So today we're doing a Q&A. So I will take questions about really anything you want. I will answer if, if you need. Let's say you need dating advice. I'm here. Let's say you need theological advice. I'm here. Let's say you want to know personal details about the other Paul. I'm here. So anything you want to ask, if I know the answer to it, I will answer your question. Anything you want. But before we get into that, I would like to... The other Paul, that rascal, came out with a... Oh, there's me. Look, me watching me. Interesting. Yeah, all you on Twitter... I don't know why you're watching on Twitter. Go over... Oh, look, I'm watching myself, watching myself. Very interesting. So all you right there. Oh, it's just opening after opening. Go and watch on YouTube. If you come on YouTube and watch, then you can ask me questions in the live chat. That is that is what's up. But let me show you. So the other Paul, that rascal, did a video against me where he said, that there was, and I quote, no conversions to traditional Catholicism because in the last 10 years because Pope Francis. So here's Settler's Lament, um, always uh, making me lament uh, the fact that I have Twitter. I'm not a convert to the Church of Traditional Catholicism, whatever that is, but I did convert to the Catholic Church several years ago under the current Holy Father. And then Ishmael, I mean, it depends. What does converting to traditional Catholicism mean? It just means being converted to Catholicism while following traditional liturgies and such. And yeah, totally, there's been conversions. Bruh, bruh. Me and my best friend last year, Sean, I would not necessarily fit the trad box, but I'm converting at the height of the Francis insanity. Me and my two friends, Catholic since January this year, SSPX and Ecclesia Dei. Um, I came back to practicing my faith under Pope Francis. Um, at my church, almost half of the young adults are converts, more than a dozen converts in just a few years. I was received from Protestantism into the Melkite Greek Catholic Church in 2020 during the infamous Pachamama debacle. Um, it's actually the opposite. Traditional Catholicism has grown especially under Pope Francis. I was baptized in 2014 in the traditional Roman Rite, a year into Pope Francis's pontificate. A good friend of mine, a fellow graduate of that year, a year later, he's now in seminary, fifth year, my one-year-old daughter's godfather, baptized Orthodox, a year and a half ago. Okay. Me this year and my best friend two years ago. Oh, we're talking about a tiny tragedy community in a city, Moscow, country, Russia where Catholics are in turn a tiny minority. Oh, there you go. That's good. We got some Russian trads. Of course, there are a lot. Me, my brother, and my father are a few recent 2019 to 2021 example. I know at least four other people who did the same in the last 10 year periods, all of them knowledgeable, intelligent, practicing, no lukewarm types. This guy. Um, I've converted under Pope Francis, just working on getting an RCIA. Remember Timothy Flanders, the meaning of Catholic, saying he converted under Pope Francis, too. Owen says, yes, hello. Jeremiah, hello. FLP, aren't you a convert? LOL. Yes, I am. You can count me in as well. Started my conversion last year. Uh, GK Chester posting. 
I know a bunch of IRL who went Presby Reformed to Catholic in the last 10 years, and I'm not even Catholic. A bunch for me is five plus. I'm not a convert because I was baptized and got my first communion, but I reverted and got confirmed after Pope Francis. Confirmed last year, attend a TLM. Have it my issues with Pope Francis, but they're generally overplayed. It wasn't really a factor in my conversion. Then David, what we're all thinking. That's an outrageous claim. Probably have more converts under this pontificate than we'd like to admit. So there you go. Timestamp? No, dude, you said it. Because I remember specifically... Um, um, uh, Goy for Jesus. I remember him specifically saying, like, haha, why would you want to be more Catholic than the Pope? And talking about how we have no converts to Catholicism, especially you said traditional Catholicism. But uh, by, by traditional Catholicism, you're basically referring to like Orthodox Catholicism, Catholicism that's not uh, heterodox. So, yeah, I just uh, boys, don't let them gaslight you. We are um, we are rapidly growing. Um, we getting a lot of converts. Um, if anybody has a convert problem, it's definitely Protestantism, not us. So you're, you're, you're getting all of our lapsed Catholics and we're getting all your good Protestants. So that's really the, the truth of the matter. Um, so we're taking that, 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 uh, thread right there. I actually, I, I accidentally sent it out at like four o'clock in the morning, which is the worst time to tweet. And then I just uh, just shared it like two hours ago. And then that's all from like the last, most of these are from the last two hours. So there you go. <laughs> Always making me lament the fact that I have Twitter. No, I love, <laughs> I love Settler's Lament, but uh, obviously we, we disagree on, on some issues. Um, I'm, I'm a lot more of a closet trad where, uh, where he's a he's a he's a closet uh, Gregory Palamas enjoyer. So, and then also uh, questions questions. This isn't a stream about debunking the other Paul, although it can become that. I'm totally fine if that's what you guys want. I reverted about a year and a half ago. Long live Pope Francis. Based, you know what was great? I um, I was I usually don't watch Taylor Marshall. But I decided last night that while I was um, taking a shower before bed, well, I guess technically this morning, uh, that I was going to listen to some of um, some of Taylor Marshall's latest podcast. And it was interesting to see uh, he had somebody on um, talking about some type of pilgrimage, um, the sharp pilgrimage uh, in France. And they said that they had 20,000 people. 20,000 people taking the pilgrimage. That's nuts. That's more than like a lot of Protestant denominations have. 20,000 people going there to just sleep on the ground and walk and take a, like a 90-mile pil pilgrimage over a week. That is crazy. And apparently they had the worst weather that they've ever had in the 40-year history of the pilgrimage. That's nuts. 20,000 people. And you know what was the most encouraging part? is they said that uh, they kind of pulled the the people and the average age of um, a person that was there. Anybody want to guess? Anyone want to guess? Average age, 20 years old. So I am older 
than the average age of the people at the Shard Pilgrimage. That's nuts. So I think anybody who walks into a to a Latin Mass or even walks into your normal Novus Ordo Parish, um, I, I mean, yes, obviously there's the boomer types that we can laugh about and um, and say like, yeah, they're they're bringing back their uh, their their seventies of uh, very very sad music, but on on a whole uh if you go to these parishes there there really is a sharp there's going to be uh still that um range of late teens and 20s that are going to be there who are converts in any in any parish so yes it was 20 years old nuts okay so i converted last year also before that i was a nominal christian cringe for a couple months for a couple months before that i was an atheist even more cringe that's amazing to hear converts always because i mean i, I i'm a convert to catholicism but before that i was um, definitely uh theologically interested so it wasn't um it wasn't like my conversion to Catholicism came out of the blue. So I don't really have that experience of coming to Catholicism as, um, as a nominal Christian or as, or as an atheist even. So it's, <clears throat> sorry. So it's kind of cool to hear, uh, hear those stories and see what were the, uh, what were the influencing factors on why they converted? I love hearing conversion stories. They're the best. It's an absolute W. Watching Doctor, not in theology, Marshall was the worst mistake I've ever made. Uh, I, 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 I'm not the biggest fan of of him, but I mean, he has some, he has some cool shows. Honestly, it's just like if he, if he cut out like seventy five percent of his shows, which are just like Pope Francis bad, and actually had like the cool, inter- like the interviews with Ryan Grant that he had were really cool. Um, the interviews with uh, on on Bellarmine and then um, St. John Fisher, those were really, really cool. I really enjoyed those interviews. Um, he's had he's had some other really cool people on for interviews. Occasionally, the uh, the theology videos that he does, uh, they're they're pretty cool, too. I actually I actually enjoy those. But when it comes to just the constant like the the constant just Pope Francis hating just all the time, it's just. It's just so annoying. Like, come on, man. We we understand. We understand that uh, we're we're not in the best of situations. You don't you don't have to talk about it every single day um, in order to get that through to us. Like, there's no problem with with doing that. Like, obviously, we have a certain obligation to uh, if there is error being spread to to speak up about it um, in a respectful manner, um, following due process. There there's there's a there's a spot for that. But to just every single day, to just make it your personality, make make hating Pope Francis into, into your uh, not that he hates Pope Francis, but making bashing Pope Francis into your personality is just it, it's so boring. Um, like there's so many more interesting things to talk about than uh, than what Pope Francis uh, said on his airplane interview last week. Like, come on now. And like I, I've I've met multiple Protestants uh, who who watch Taylor Marshall, interestingly, in order to get my papist own points. And, and you see that in in uh, like like the video that they made responding to my my 20 questions that Protestants can't answer, which was which was a joke video. So I understand their response was obviously not like super duper serious, but you see it just pervading, um, pervading uh, the way in which they think about the Catholic Church is, oh, like Pope Francis is some like rank liberal universalist who doesn't believe in hell, which is ridiculous to believe. 
um, if you take into account all of all of his writings or Pope Francis this and Pope Francis that and Pope Francis thinks that homosexuality is is OK. And also Rome is just allowing and never has spoken against the German bishops. Like, are you serious? The CDF condemn them. It's like it's like, come on, um, if if you're if all you're doing is just watching uh watching uh the angry trads uh just go on and on and on and on about how bad pope francis is like the the protestants it's going to cause great scandal and it's going to lead many away from the faith okay so 40 no yes lefty okay so is the liturgy argument the only good argument against reform slash prop without despising it of course um uh, i'm not sure what you what you mean the only good argument uh, maybe you mean a only a good argument against reform slash prop so when it comes to uh, the history of Protestant liturgies, there's actually a good book. Um, let me let me pull it up for you guys, uh, and I'll send the link to. If you want to know more about the history of Protestant liturgies, um, what is it called? I read it for a class a while ago. Um, liturgies of the Western Church. I think it's liturgies of the Western Church. Um, let me see. It's a it's a classic work. Uh, yes, there it is. Liturgies of the Western Church. So this is going to be a very helpful uh, book for anybody who's interested in this topic of of uh, Protestant liturgies. If you want to just see how they compare to to what we have. This is a lot of just um, nice primary source material. So I'm going to send the link real quick. So you have the, obviously the first apology, Justin Martyr, um, Hippolytus, the Roman rites. Um, then you're going to have Martin Luther's mass. So really this is, this is, does, isn't really concerning itself with, yeah, obviously it's going to have like a, like 50 or so pages of pre reformation, but this is really concerned about post reformation stuff. So you have, um, Martin Luther's formula Mise, uh, which is going to be his Latin, then his, uh, uh, I can't pronounce German. So this is his uh, German mass. And then you're going to have uh, Ehrlich Zwingli, um, his Lord's Supper and his Liturgy of the Word. You have Martin Bucer, which is, Bucer is actually uh, the most important reformer. The Strasbourg Liturgy is going to be the most important thing to read. You're going to have John Calvin um, in his form of church prayers. You're going to have um, Potius, um and then Farrell. Those two are also important. Uh, Farrell was uh, with Calvin. And you're going to have the first and second prayer books of King Edward VI, which is going to be the 49 and 52 prayer books. So the 49 prayer book is definitely the best of all of these when it comes to continuity. You're going to have a Puritan uh, book of the Form of Common Prayers, which is going to be against the uh, Book of Common Prayer. You have Knox, the Westminster Directory, which is another very, very important um, work when it comes to understanding uh, Presbyterian history of the liturgy. 
the directory of public worship was uh, was came from the same place that uh, the shorter, larger catechism, and then the um, Westminster Confession. Then you have Wesley, which is going to be a little less important, but yeah, Wesley, and then Baxter. So Baxter was actually uh, interesting. Baxter was an Anglican. So there you go. So this is going to be a really important uh, resource if you just want to look through for yourself. Um, a lot of the, and I think he has a lot of notes here. I think we had a different version. For some reason, we had a different version when I was taking a class and we read it. Um, but then there's some liturgical works too. Uh, uh, I think Abuser. I can't remember what the work is called. Man, I am rusty when it comes to. He has a. Buser has a book on the liturgy, which I can't remember right now. Oh, yeah, I promise you guys I was going to send the link. But so those are good resources. Dang, will you stop? Okay, yep. Come on now, let me get the link. There you go. Okay, links down there. So those are really good, uh, really good resources. And Buser has a work too, but I can't remember the name off the top of my head. You'll have to ask. I'll, I'll probably, you know what I'll do? I'll ask. I'll ask Twitter right now. I guarantee one of these, one of these nerds are gonna are gonna find it out. I sold my copy of that book. Um, what is that one? Um, book Buser wrote. Because he talks about liturgical reform and stuff like that. It's, it's actually pretty uh, decent. Not not saying I agree with his ideas, but it's a really rigorous uh, type work. So what you're going to see uh, universally is you're going to see if you are used to Latin Mass or if you just in there, they have the Roman canon and the uh, Roman order of Mass. If you just read through, read through the order of Mass, just go through it and then make note of those ideas that are going to be uncomfortable for Protestants to be able to, to use. And then look at the dates that are given for the origin of some of these, like the Confidior, for example, if I'm remembering correct off the top of my head, is around the 8th or ninth century. You're going to have some of these liturgical elements that are very early in the, in the early medieval church or even late patristic era. You're going to get some of these elements of the Mass arising. So make note of that, and then look to see who has liturgical continuity with that with that medieval deposit because what's the claim what the claim is going to be made is that um the protestants are a um, a valid development on on the medieval church and a cleanser of her corruptions um and are going to keep the substance of the um of the medieval faith uh, developed from the patristic faith and then what you're going to get is the the Tridentine faith, the Tridentine church, or the Papists or Romanists or whatever you want to call us, that they are going to be the corruption, and they're going to take all of the all of the corruptions and stuff. But rather, what you're going to see is you're going to see a, a liturgical tradition, in some cases stretching about stretching back almost a millennium. Almost a thousand years. Some of these, uh, some of these traditions are going to stretch back, and then some with relics stretch back even, even further, um, crazy old to uh, second century. At least when we have solid evidence for them. 
So you're going to have you're going to have these traditions, which are uh, liturgical traditions kept uh, by the Roman Church. And then what you're going to have in the um, in the ecclesial communions, the ecclesial communions that broke off um, during the Reformation is what you're going to have is they're going to reject a lot of these liturgical elements. Why are they going to reject a lot of these liturgical elements, you ask? Well, they're going to reject the liturgical elements because they reject the theology which is present behind those liturgical elements. Because remember, lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of prayer is the law of belief. So if you do not have the same prayer and you must anathematize some of the elements of that prayer, also you're not going to be having the uh, the same faith. So I think in the practical uh, lived reality of both the mass, which is the public sacrifice of the church, and the uh, breviary, which is the public prayer of the church, and the mass is also the public prayer of the church. You're going to see the most fundamental um, documents, which are going to express the faith of the church Catholic, are going to be rejected by the Protestants um, and anathematized some of the elements. But they're going to be accepted and continued and developed upon um, by Rome. Because you could you can claim all you want that the Church of Henry is the same as the church of Bede. But if you can't pray the prayers of Bede, you do not have the faith of Bede. It's ridiculous. Okay, so if every priest just repeated the homilies of Francis, it would be a significant improvement. Yeah, I'm just, oh, this is some good French press. I usually don't make French press, but uh, I decided to today. And it's delicious. If yeah, so if you actually read a lot of what Francis writes, like just not not like the the, the sort of clip art, like let's take just a sentence here, a sentence there, and like the, obviously the some which which are troubling, um, which obviously everybody uh, has to agree that some of them are troubling. We can't just see and cope about every sentence the man says. <clears throat> but if you just take his works as a whole, there's not there's not much um, not much issue, at least I think. Okay, so, hi, bro. Bro, I wanted to ask, how is God absolutely simple versus God having a distinction between his energy and essence? That is an interesting uh, question because I don't know what's being asked. How is God absolutely simple versus God? Uh, I'm, I'm assuming um, how is it different? So when we talk about the simplicity of God, oh, I... I just need to keep that. Stop sharing my screen. Okay, so when it comes to the simplicity of God, what we're talking about is there. What what I need to dispel first is all that simplicity means is simplicity means that there are no parts. That's what it means. That God is not made of parts. So, like me, I have a substance and accidents. I have a form and matter. I have a body and soul. I have. Um, a hand right here. I have an ear right here. I, I, I'm i made of multiple different parts, which construct me. So there are real distinctions between all of these various uh, different parts of me. Essence and existence is another, um, another category. So what the debate is going to be is there isn't any like more absolute simplicity versus like I, I don't even know what they call it anymore like absolute divine simplicity that that's a garbage term what is there a difference between having no parts and having absolutely no parts like come on now man that's just a stupid distinction so what the debate is going to be over um usually within the uh the, the framework of divine simplicity is there's going to be two groups 
There's going to be the SCOTUS and then there's going to be the Thomas. Uh, this, the, the SCOTUS are going to agree um, with what's called a formal distinction, which is really a, um, an inseparable difference with different forms or definitions. So um, like they would say the difference, let me try to think of a good example of a formal distinction. It's still a bit obscure in my brain. Um, I, I've tried to have Byzantine Scotus explain it to me a million times, but like the difference between my rationality and animality, um, that, that would be a, an example. And then what the Thomists are going to say is that there is a minor distinction. So uh, this is also called a distinction of reason reasoned. So uh, it's a distinction which is made of my intellect, but there's what's called a fundamentum in re. There's a foundation in the thing itself, which is going to reason my reason. So it's not that I'm purely making a uh, some sort of nominal and definitional uh, difference, which with no foundation in the thing. That's not what the Thomists have ever said. What we are saying is that there is um, there is no real distinction. So there isn't that like separability into into parts with uh, strict sort of uh, divisions in the thing. That's not what we ever said. What we're saying is there is that difference with a foundation in the thing which is uh, causing my reason to, um, to distinguish between the two. So those are, those are really the two differences. And then with uh, energy and essence, um, uh, ask, ask 10 Orthodox, you're going to get 10 different answers. Um, I've tried to read the uh, triads. I have read the triads of, of Gregory Palamas, but um, uh, Byzantine Scotus actually told me I read the wrong edition. It was a terrible edition. So it, it's, it's, it's really confusing. You're going to get everything um, in Orthodox interpretation from something like the Thomas position, actually, with a distinction of reason, reasoned with a certain fundamentum in Ray. That's where you're going to get to everything. Uh, some argue that it's the SCOTUS position, and then others are going to argue that there is some sort of real distinction between energy and essence. And then you don't even um, you don't even believe in simplicity anymore um, of any kind. And then we start uh, giving the arguments from reason for simplicity. So those are that's kind of the the playing field that we're going to be under when it comes to simplicity. Okay, do you know Solivev, and what do you think? I have no idea who Solivev is, but I'm, but I'm interested right now. So S O L O. I pronounce his name terribly. Solivev. Stefan Solivev. Um, is this a Russian propagandist? Oh, there you go. Interesting. Russian propagandist sounds based. Oh, no, no, no. Russian philosopher. Okay. Okay. There you go. So philosophy, it's, you're probably not talking about the propagandist. You're probably talking about the philosopher, theologian, poet, pamphleteer, and literary critic. So let me share my screen. I know this is a tangent, but Vladimir, and his name is spelled like that. That's uh, interesting. Was he alma mater, Imperial Moscow University? School is Christian philosophy, sophiology. Oh, sophiology. Oh, no. Oh, no. Sophiology is bad. Christian mysticism, Russian symbolism, Russian Schlegianism. Russian shalag Yeah, when it comes to sophiology, that's uh, that's pretty bad. Yeah, I wouldn't be reading him. 
sophiology is pretty bad. Okay, so could you explain the beef I see on Twitter between trad Anglicans and actual Catholics of the Anglican tradition like yourself? I know nothing of the history. Okay, so if you want the history behind, okay, I will, I will, I guess I'll give like a 10 minute sort of exposition of the entire history of the English church. Uh, that should be not too difficult. So hopefully I don't forget any of the details. So basically, what you have is you have St. Joseph of Arimathea uh, first took the faith to the English Isles shortly after the crucifixion, res uh, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was the uncle of our Lord, interestingly enough. And he took, it, it said um, in some traditions that he actually took our Lord to the, to the English Isles. So... Uh, believe it, don't believe it, but it's definitely uh, based, so therefore it's true. Because uh, St. Joseph of Arimathea was a, uh, I think he was a merchant of some sort, if I'm remembering correctly. So that is where the faith of the Angles originally uh, began. So what you have after that is throughout uh, some of the second century, you'll get Tertullian talking about how there are Christians on the British Isles. You get, I believe, the Council of Nicaea mentions uh, that some, um, no, <laughs> I'm not going to, the wife brought me in some pizza and I'm like, no, I'm not going to be eating that on stream. So uh, you also have uh, the Council of Nicaea, I believe, mentioning um, that there were some bishops who were invited uh, from the British Isles to come. But that's about what you get from the early sort of uh, pre-Gregorian era. As you get mentioned here, mentioned there, you get some legends and stuff like that. But it isn't anything uh, very solid because you have to remember the British Isles were like the edge of the world. So there wasn't uh, much going on there. So uh, beginning in the time of Pope St. Gregory the Great, what you have is you have Pope St. Gregory the Great sending St. Augustine of Canterbury to, to kind of reestablish the church in Britain and to bring, um, uh, to, to, to bring a lot more organization to it because it was kind of before this. A, uh, it's like the Wild West of, of the world. So there wasn't much uh, good organization. They say they had fallen back on some of the traditions which the rest of the churches accepted, especially the date of Easter, which was accepted at the Council of Nicaea and such. So that's what you had with St. Augustine of Canterbury. Then you have all the way throughout the, um, the medieval church, you have this just uh, normal uh, sort of outpost of... Um, of the Catholic Church, which is in England. And then um, during, uh, let me remember, Henry II, if I'm remembering correctly, Henry II, was it Henry II? Um, Henry II of England, I think it was Henry II. Was he the guy that did a bunch of bad stuff? Do, 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 do. Yes, yes, there you go. So under Henry II, you begin to have some trouble, and there had been trouble before, and there is going to be trouble after. And this is going to remind you, of the, remind you of a different Henry. But Henry II had some issues with the church. So there was um, this sort of uh, strained relationship between the church and the state in England, 
Uh, he wanted to uh, prosecute a priest who'd been doing some bad stuff, and the uh, the civil magistrate. It wasn't him. It was uh, one of his governors. The civil magistrate decided to execute the priest. And this is a huge no-no because the church uh, does not rely on the um, the judicial sentencing of the state. We're completely independent of it. And uh, we have that right of self-government as a perfect society. So you can't uh, judge our priests. And uh, Henry decided, well, this was a good opportunity to gain a little bit more, um, a little bit more authority when it came to the church. So we told the Pope to heck off. The um, and then uh, eventually this led to the death of Saint Thomas of Becket, which was um, which was not not a good thing. Obviously, he was a martyr for the faith. So you have this strained relationship. England got put under interdict uh, for all of the shenanigans that happened with some of the royalty. And you see that there never was this really amazing uh, relationship with form between the civil power and the church in England. And then in, um, I want to say the 1530s, if I'm remembering correctly off the top of my head, what you had was King Henry VIII, who decided... um, that he had the true authority over the church in England and that the Pope had been a usurper uh, when it came to the church and that he had authority over those temporal aspects of the church. Um, so he decided to, uh, t- to take charge. And I think that's a fair way of uh, representing. I think most Anglicans would be happy with the way that I represented Henry right there, that he, um, he saw himself uh, and this long, this long-term debate that had been between the church and the state in England, that what you had was the king as representative of the laity had authority over the temporal aspects of the church, and the pope hath no jurisdiction in in England. That that's that's what you had. So at that point, the theology didn't really change um, for another about. About two or three decades is when you started to get the shift to a um, to a more reformed uh, theology, and then you had uh, Queen Mary who reestablished the church in England, and then she died. Um, unfortunately, well, that was after um, King Edward um, the sixth uh, had reigned for a short period of time. That's when a lot of the reform happened under Cranmer at all and Vermigli and all those all those guys were there during that time. Mary reestablishes the church and then um, Mary dies. And then you have the long, 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 long Elizabethan settlement where Queen Elizabeth uh, I took over and uh, she really solidified a lot of the theology and uh, in such of the, uh, the what would be known as the Church of England, but really is not the Church of England. It's the, the Henryist uh, sect who, who had schismed from the from the rest of the church. And they're not properly the church in England. So that is that is up to that point. Now, um, in the uh, late 16th century, you had a sect which were known as the uh, Puritans who began to to arise in England, who thought that the Reformation did not go far enough, that the church in England, uh, church of England, I'm sorry, uh, that they that they uh, had um, kept some 
papist elements such as signing the the cross and baptism such as having a set liturgy such as the wearing of vestments such as uh, the use of bishops so the puritan sect uh really didn't like that so there had been uh some debates which went on between the two and this went on for quite some decades after elizabeth you had james and um, a lot of a lot of stuff happened under him, especially the uh, the translation of the King James Bible. And then you had uh, King Charles and King Charles uh, is going to be very important because you had then the um, the Caroline divines. And then you're good. We're going to meet a another character. Um, where is he? I like his picture because he kind of looks based. This guy, who I 100% think was actually just a, uh, just a Catholic martyr. Where is he? There he is, Archbishop Laud. Archbishop William Laud. You have him, and he decided that, Oh, wow. Uh, you Puritans think you're cool, like burning vestments and like saying all this garbage. And they, they, they were they did have some like extremely violent streaks. So he's like, you know what, guys, I'm going to cut your noses off and your ears off <laughs> and based based anti Puritan. He, he went off against the against the Puritans. Then in the 1650s, what you had is you had a certain revolt which happened, and then it uh, fell into civil war. Um, Archbishop Laud, unfortunately, was executed. Um, and also, um, King Charles I was executed, unfortunately. So, uh, yeah, that's what happened. The Puritans took over. You had the, the Westminster Assembly, which uh, codified a lot of reform doctrine during the time. And it was just a very bloody period. And then you had the reascension of the monarch after uh, that co the collapse of the Puritans happened, and in the end, really after after this point, um, there never really the, the the Church of England never really was the same. Um, there 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 was a significant um, damage which was done. You didn't really have this unified force like you had in the Elizabethan <clears throat> Jacobite and um, Caroline eras. There never, there never was that um, that strength that they had again, and that unity of theology. And this eventually led to the tolerance um, of the Puritans. So that led to the prolif uh, prolif proliferation of denominations, which happened and breakoffs from the Church of England. So you had the uh, a lot of um, stagnant sort of um, church life throughout the remainder of the 17th. I mean, it wasn't terrible and not, nothing like it is today. But throughout the 17th, 18th and early 19th century, um, you, you had this um, this sort of stagnant uh, church life. Um, you never had the glories of the Caroline divines again. You never had the glories of the, uh, the Jacobite divines. Um, that, 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 that there was no uh, uh, glorious um, uh, Bishop Lancelot Andrews, who is uh, definitely one of my favorite um, Anglicans. Ne never had that again. So fast forwarding, um, 
I don't really know much about 18th century um, history, except that it wasn't too good. So in the um, 1830s, you had what was called the Oxford Movement. A few um, divines, uh, well, it really was actually younger students at Oxford, uh, led by E.B. Pusey, who was a professor of, um, I think he was a professor, Old Testament. He was an Old Testament professor. And a few others, most famously, um, John Henry Newman. Um, they, they began to uh, very much dislike the relationship that the church and the state had in England, interestingly enough. That's what it was. The, uh, they, they thought that the state was definitely corrupting the church by that close union. So they, uh, they uh, wrote what were called the Tracks for the Times. Um, there was 90 of them, and uh, they wanted to bring back some Catholicity and the theology of the uh, Church of England. And what you're going to get at first is most people, most people aren't going to know this, but what you're going to get um, at first from a lot of the Tractarians is you're going to give a genuinely um, conservative um, Anglican thought with a sort of like ressourcement of, um, of Anglican divines and um, put in uh, contextualized into um, Catholic theology. That's what you're going to get. And it, it was really, uh, it was uh, in, in their, uh, in, in Anglican theology, it was a very glorious uh, movement which had uh, become, they weren't uh, papist by any means. They were still reformed. They didn't have um, the sacrificial Roman vestments. They, uh, they went along with the rubrics of the prayer book. It was really, it was really um, just a conservative Anglican movement with some interesting political beliefs and a resourcement of older Anglican theologians and, uh, and such. And then later uh, you had, um, let me think, in the 1850, late 1840s, 1850s, what, I'm trying to remember a lot of dates. Um, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. When did John Henry Newman convert? I want to say 1848 is when he converted. Newman converted to Catholicism. 1845, okay. So this was a little over a decade into the Oxford movement. So it wasn't that all these guys instantly like went mopapus. But in the 1840s and 50s, um, a lot of the movement, um, and not, not like a majority of it, but there was definitely a significant minority of the movement, decided to convert to Roman Catholicism. A lot of uh, uh, Anglican laymen converted to Roman Catholicism. Um, and then some of the more uh, papist elements um, of the movement were taken out. But in the later 19th century, you had what was called the um, the ritualist movement, which is what you what you would think of as uh, more so Anglo uh, Anglo Catholicism today. Um, original Anglo Catholics uh, would be seen as uh, extremely extremely um, um, extremely conservative uh, in their Anglican bent. They're probably um, more. Um, historically rooted in uh, in Anglican thought than most um, extremely low church uh, Anglicans are today. Um, 
the death definitely was a very conservative movement. But later 19th century of the ritualists, they began bringing the candles on the altar. They began praying the Ave. They produced some um, some English breviaries. They um, they did a lot of a lot of stuff when it came to uh, the ritual elements behind um, Anglican so-called Anglican um, worship. So they came into uh, into uh, in, into formation, but um, the <laughs> the the state really didn't like that. So so some of these guys were jailed for praying the Ave Maria. Um, these guys were, uh, were were definitely not. Um, befriended by a lot of the the anglican um establishment because remember the 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 uh, state had a great deal of control over uh over things that would go on so if you had uh, uh, liturgical heterodoxy they would uh monk you over the head and uh, tell you to go take a hike so this uh this sort of movement of ritualist anglo-catholicism uh developed throughout the 20th century um, throughout England, but what is going to be important for us is going to be America, because this is really where the ordinariate is going to uh, is going to come from. A lot of American influences. So, in the uh, in the late eighteen in the late nineteenth century, you had a lot of the Episcopal Church. Um, you had certain movements within the Episcopal Church towards ritualism and towards Anglo-Catholicism. And uh, a certain group of priests and laymen, and I believe they, I'm not sure whether there was bishops with them. I think there might have been. But um, a certain group broke off and created what's called the Reformed Episcopal Church in order to bring back um, the, the Reformed heritage uh, in the past and try to fight the mean Tractarians. And then throughout the, um, throughout the early uh, and mid um, 20th century, you had a good deal of Anglo-Catholic development within the United States. And then eventually, um, the 60s and 70s hit the Episcopal Church. And it it hit them hard, as, as we know. It hit them very, very, very hard. So finally, in um, 1976, you had who were called the Elizabeth, the Elizabeth, the Philadelphia Eleven which were a group of 11 deaconesses. And you have to remember, back in the 50s, so just 20 years before, you couldn't even have altar girls in an Episcopal church. And then they first allowed it, and you had to get Episcopal approval. So you had to get approval from your bishop to even use an altar girl. So uh, this wasn't like a liberal Episcopal church. This was um, just as conservative as you would think of um, Roman um, uh, liturgy, uh, theology, and practice during the time. It was very, still very conservative. But in the 70s, um, as, as it went for everybody, it wasn't going too good for the Episcopal Church. Um, and then they had the Philadelphia 11. And what happened is you, you had at the, the meeting of bishops, they said, hey, what are we going to do with these Philadelphia 11? And, and uh, a bishop stood up and was like, actually, they're valid. Uh, let's let them blah, 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 blah. And finally, um, they eventually allowed, allowed it. And then at the, at the next, I think it was the next General Assembly, they had gave a, um, just a uh, universal allowance for the ordination, court ordination of females to the priesthood. 
which was was a disaster. So at this moment, what you had is obviously you're going to have a group within the Episcopal Church, the very conservative Episcopal Church, who isn't going to like this. So they met in uh, St. Louis, um, and they had the St. Louis Congress or Convention. Gosh, I mean, I haven't been thinking about this stuff in a while, so some of the details um, are a bit... It, um, Congress of St. Louis. There you go. The Congress of St. Louis. So what you had is you had a bunch of laymen, priests, and even a few bishops who met in St. Louis and said, look, guys, um, we, we're in trouble. <laughs> we're in big trouble. We really need to do something about this. So what they uh, decided to do is there was a strong um, tractarian, not really tractarian per se, a strong ritualist element within these group of, of laymen, um, bishops and priests, who decided eventually to break off and to tell the Episcopal Church to take a hike. They invited the Church of England and the rest of the communion to, uh, to go with them and help them. Uh, but this was, uh, it was, it wasn't too much of a success. And within a few years, you had um, splinter group after splinter group, and the movement was never really uh, viable, unfortunately. So if we fast forward this to um, the early 2000s, you had a group which was called the Traditional Anglican Communion, which uh, ever since all of the splinters from the original, uh, what's called the continuing movement, Ever since those original splinters, you had a bunch of groups that wanted to, wanted to, how do I put this? They wanted to come together and bring back that original unity that they had um, in the Congress of St. Louis. They wanted the, uh, the conservative um, Anglo-Catholicism to, to have a unified um, sort of head. And the TAC, the traditional... Uh, Anglican Communion was one of those groups. Uh, they had, I want to think, uh, around a million members. So it wasn't like a tiny, tiny group, but uh, definitely uh, um, wasn't anything uh, massive like the uh, the rest of the uh, Anglican Communion in in um, in union with Canterbury. So they, during their meeting of bishops, decided that. Uh, they wanted to have full union with Rome. They uh, begged um, the uh, the Holy Office. They begged uh, Pope Benedict. Uh, was this? I think Pope Benedict was in during this time. They begged Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. Please, 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 Pope Benedict, let us come in. We promise. They they took the Catechism of the Catholic Church and signed it on their on the altar. All of the bishops did, and they said, "Please, please, 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 will you let us in?" And finally, to everybody's surprise, uh, Pope Benedict came out with Anglicanorum Chedibus in 2008. So this was the formation of the uh, ordinariates. So the ordinariates were formed in order to have that Anglican patrimony, which is going to be the patrimony of the Church of England. Many people ask, why isn't the serum practiced or why isn't that practice? Well, because it's a pastoral provision to allow for the conversion of former Anglicans. It isn't um, it isn't like you would think about uh, the um, like the Melkite Church or the Byzantine um, Catholic Church. It's not like that. It's a provision within the Latin Church 
to um, allow some of the liturgical expression to continue, um, to allow uh, for the conversion of priests and bishops to continue in their pastoral role over the faithful. It is really a provisional um, sort of thing. So there was a lot, a lot in England who converted um, to this multiple, multiple bishops, uh, extremely famous bishops, a lot of them. And then in Australia, too, there was an ordinariate. And then um, in America, you had the ordinariate chair of St. Peter, uh, too. And there weren't as many conversions uh, in America, but it still wasn't a tiny number. But in England, oh, my gosh, there was just loads, like all, all of the convert conservative uh, priests in the Church of England. But uh, going back to our continuum, friends, the TAC, right well, when when uh, Pope Benedict XVI came out with uh, with Anglican Orm Chady Boost, they were like, ah, uh, actually, uh, never mind, guys, we're gonna we're gonna kind of scram. Except there was a, a one bishop, um, uh, one archbishop actually, who who did convert. Um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But uh, currently, his the parish which uh, he was at the cathedral is Incarnation Catholic Church in Orlando, which is a very um, important ordinary church down there. And I actually uh, have been there on multiple occasions. Very one beautiful, beautiful church. So that is uh, that is kind of the the background. So why is there the beef between us um, Anglo? Uh, true Anglo-Catholics, the ordinary Catholics, and the, uh, the trad Anglicans. Well, you see with the, uh, with a lot of continuing Anglicans, they were, uh, they, they uh, definitely were extremely uh, papist belief in purgatory, seven sacraments, transubstantiation. They, uh, that they, they, the whole, the whole nine yards, they, uh, they were John Henry Newman's track 90 on steroids. But uh, when when it came time to put your money on the table, um, a lot of them didn't convert. There are some uh, personal issues. Let's say why um, why we can guess a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, Anglicans didn't convert, and it may or may not have to do with um, a few divorces here or there. Um, I'm not speculating, but um, for for a lot of if you if you sit down and uh and talk to a continuum priest and um i have asked one uh, that's that's the that's the speculation around town because unfortunately um that at least when it comes to the old guard a lot of the new guard um that that i've met they're really really good people amazing people but a lot of the old guard bishops um they they got some uh they got some issues uh let's say um but for example, like uh, Archbishop uh, Jones of the um, man, I can't remember all of these churches anymore. Archbishop uh, Chandler Holder Jones, he is an absolute goat. I love the man; he's great. He's amazing. Archbishop Chad's great. But a lot of the old guard, uh, they weren't as um, they, they they had purple fever. Uh, they they wanted the purple cassock. They had uh, they led schisms just to, just to get the episcopate. These these guys, they didn't join. Um, but a lot of, a lot of the reasoning for the other Anglicans. So you have the ACNA, a lot of those who stay in the Episcopal church, the REC, um, the current church of England. Um, and then even some of the continuum who genuinely, um, who, who are, who are more genuine about their disagreement. Um, like, uh, some people from, um, 
a lot of outside of uh, the TAC. There, there's some people who genuinely um, just don't agree with the Roman church and they didn't make any promises about, um, about corporate reunion or anything like that. What's their problem? Well, uh, their problem is that the ordinariate really is um, really is a genuine uh, the, the the genuine claim to medieval Catholicism. That's really what it is. It's a genuine claim to medieval Catholicism in England, um, where before they were the the only guys, and we hadn't really even reestablished um, the hierarchy in England. But now, not only have we reestablished the hierarchy, but we have a um, a means and instrument for bringing Anglicans back, which has been very, very successful. Um, I've talked to people at the Ordinariate who say they'll get calls from Anglican priests once or twice a week um, asking uh, questions about having reunion with Rome. Um, that's just the uh, the ordinary chair of St. Peter. I can't imagine how it is in England because it was just a mass amount of people, just thousands of uh, just priests who, who came over from the Church of England. So that, that's why there's they see it as a sheep-stealing operation, a shepherd-stealing operation. But um, uh, it's not stealing if, uh, if they weren't sheep or weren't shepherds to begin with. That, that's really all I have to say about it. Okay, so that was forever. I'll probably clip that, actually. Okay, this is a good question. So um, if God's will is immutable, how are we to understand that God answers our prayers? That's a really good question. So when you um, when you look, uh, I believe St. Thomas Aquinas answers this about prayers. Uh, and my Mac is about to die. I still got 10% though. So I'll still go on for a few more minutes. If I just randomly disappear, that's why. But the reason why is that when we think about the way in which God relates to the world, it isn't that God hears our prayer and he's like, Oh, okay, great. Um, now I can uh, respond to this and I'm going to uh, do X or Y, but we have to realize that it is, it is really the other way around. God is using our prayers as an instrument to carry out his, his will and purpose. So God has um, in his plan of providence, so ordered the universe that um, the dignity of uh, secondary causality is given um, to man through through our will, then through certain uh, which is free, then also through certain contingent actions that we become true causes in ourselves. So it's that it's the ordering of God which precedes us, which um, which has used our prayers in that grand plan of providence in those, all of those secondary contingent and free actions to bring about his purposes in the redemption and reconciliation of the world to God. So that is, that is how our, our prayers are used as, um, as second causes. Hope that helps. Okay. Francis homilies go hard sometimes. Good, good. Okay, so if God is immutable, then how does the incarnation work? How is there a hypostatic union without changing God? That is a very good question. Let me bring up, because Aquinas is going to answer this better than I am. 
So let me remember, this is going to be in Prima Pars. I think there's one in Prima Pars, then one in uh, Tertio Pars. Do, 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 do. Okay. Nope, it is not in Prima Pars where I thought it was, but that's fine. Let's go to Tertio Pars. Okay. I know, I know there's a good response that he has where he states it much better. I will be able to. Okay. Let me. Okay. Do, 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 do. Okay. If not, I'll have to. I'll have to wing this. That's scary. Me winging it. Okay. Oh man, I might have to. I might have to wing it. That's scary, boys. Okay, it's fine. I got this. Okay, so the reason the reason why is going to be that with the uh, hypostatic union, while um, while the single hypostasis of the 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 second person of the Trinity is that principle of action, both for the human and the divine natures. There is a relation which is um, signif- which is created between um, the humanity of Christ and between the Godhead. There's that relation which is formed, just as we have a relation um, to to God, but there is no contrary relation which is formed. Now, when it comes to the incarnation, we have to ask um, concerning immutability, what is changing? So uh, when it when it comes to the divinity, which is going to be signified the divine nature, there is a um, there is no change which is wrought because there is no um, incarnation in nature. That is the uh, the problem of the Eutychians when it comes to uh, what they professed. But since there is that um, there is that union in person, not in nature, the divinity remains immutable. While there is a new relation and um, new relation which is uh, made from the humanity to the hypostasis of the second person, the Trinity. But there is no um, contrary relation which is given between the hypostasis and the uh, and the human nature. So there is no change which is wrought in the divinity. There is only a um, a uh, there. There is only that uh, hypostatic sort of uh, principality which is uh, formed with the humanity. Okay.
Okay, does the canon promulgated at Trent affirm anything about textual variants, i.e. Uh, gratia, the long ending of Mark, the Percipe Adultre, 1 John 5-7? That is a good question. So I know this is treated. Um, actually, you know, I should do a... So, so my first my first reaction. I know there's a there's a section where it's spoken of in the STS that is really good, right next to the Vulgate one. So let's see if I can pull that up real quick because it's going to give a lot more uh, historical context to this answer that I'm really able to. Okay, so. So on the Church of Christ on Holy Scripture, there you go. And no, I cannot send you this in case anybody wants it. I'm not going to be get it. Find it yourself. Okay, I know there's like a whole section on this on Holy Scripture. Blah 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 blah. Okay, the nature of inspiration, the existence of inspiration. Okay. So there we go, page 642. So first, the first place we're going to have to look for this is um, in that canon of Trent you're talking about. Um, it talks about all of the, all of the parts of, um, it's going to be all the parts of these books. So that would seem to include Seem to include the uh, Percipe Adultere, First John five seven, all of those too. Okay, here we go. I think I found it. Okay, there we go. I will. Um, share my screen because I did find it and I'm really good. I found that pretty quickly. Oh no. 3% battery. Okay. 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 I'm going to turn my, Oh no, that turns it way too down. Okay. Let's, if I, if I disappear, that's why. Okay. Here we go. Okay. So however, Please not that this. Okay, so the, the Vulgate has at least substantial conformity with the original text. For if the Vulgate is declared to be authentic, therefore this is because it has internal authenticity of conformity. And this, even if not in some accidentals, must be at least present in substantials. Notice accidentals would be. So what does it mean by accidentals and substantials? Well, I'm glad you asked. Moreover, there would be lit, lit, uh, no little harm for the church if at least the substantial conformity were not present. But then the Latin church for a long time for many centuries would have been deceived with regard to the substance itself, the written word of God. And then it would be said undeservedly in the dogmatic canon of the scriptures that all the books must be received with all their parts as sacred and canonical as they are being read in the Catholic church and are contained in the ancient Latin Vulgate editions. Hence it follows a in the Vulgate, there are all and only the sacred books B 
the totality of the sentences or the Vulgate as a whole, which has been preserved by the church for so many centuries, is the same and contains the same things as the totality of sentences of the original texts. But not only the totality of the sentences of the Vulgate or the Vulgate taken as a whole was contained in the original text of scripture. Also, the individual dogmatic texts of the Vulgate, that is, the texts dealing with faith and morals, if they were not, if were preserved by the church for so many centuries, as their contents were not lacking in the autographs, and also, as it seems, the definitive text of the Vulgate preserved by the long use of the church does not express any dogma other than the corresponding text of the autographs. Okay, and then he's going to blah, 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 blah. However, please note that this applies not to just any text of the Vulgate. For one, those that are purely profane and not closely connected with the things pertaining to faith and morals, although they certainly are inspired if they agree with the inspired originals, are not declared authentic by the Council. Two, those texts of the Vulgate, although they are dogmatic, about which there have been critical doubts in the Church, therefore have not been preserved by the long use of the Church. Notice these have not been preserved by the long use of the Church. They are also are not to be declared to be authentic. To these pertain 1 Corinthians 15.51, which in Latin does not agree with the original Greek text, and also 1 John 5.7, the famous Yoannine comma, which does not uh, seem to have been in the original text. From the declaration of the authenticity of the Vulgate, greater force is not being attributed to the text previously considered to be doubtful from a critical point of view. For the Vulgate is to be preferred or declared to be authentic only in so far it has been preserved for a long time the use of the church. There you go. So that is really your answer, is that a lot of these have not been preserved by the long use of the church, therefore they do not, it does not apply. So sorry that I, uh, that I uh, had to, I had to cut it off because I'm at 2% battery. But I will talk to you guys tomorrow, and uh, and thank you a lot. See you later. And remember, it is Trinity Tide. So we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in Unity.